Greetings, fellow travelers, and welcome to the Way of the Showman, where we view the world through the lens of showmanship. I am your gracious host, Captain Frodo, and what a pleasure it is to have you here back with me. What an incredible time we are living through here. Just every day is just filled with uncertainty. I really stand by what I was talking about last week with my foundations or the foundations of the showman is just turning into liquid. Every day seems to bring new uncertainties. There were some glimpses of, uh, of hope that was uh, presented round about the time that I released uh, the last week's podcast. There was rumors that the phase three here in Las Vegas, where we would potentially see shows opening, that could happen. But now, this week, cases are spiking and the world is still a very complicated place. The virus has come to stay and uh, I don't want to talk and go on too much this week about uh, how everything is broken. I'd rather like to focus on the fact that as the world has been closing down and the parameters have been changing, the fact that we don't have crowds and the fact that the virus has come here and we have social distancing we need to stay apart to stay safe that means that we are living in a time of constraint and constraints in a workflow is a very important thing like if you're having a brainstorm and everybody's throwing their five cents on the table and any random person can say anything then just ends up being quite wishy-washy. You need to place some constraints into what you're uh, doing. Like if you're making an act you, or a show, you might want to decide that uh, you only wanted to fit into two suitcases, for instance, or you wanted to be able to be suitable for uh, watching for children, or you wanted to be for families or strictly adult late night audience. All these are constraints that would help guide you towards creating good work. And uh, in a certain sense, as creative artists, we have this unstoppable flow that is inside us of wanting to discover and experiment and see what is new. What can we do? What kind of novelty can we bring into the world? After all, another way to describe what I do is that I am a novelty act. I'm looking for the new. And, and this time that we're going through now, these constraints are making this time a very creative time. All these creative solutions that we will be taking now over the next little bit on how to bring the craft of showmanship back to the world, this will be the next generation's uh, generic lines. When you're a street performer, there is a sort of a pool of lines that are called generic lines. Somebody, of course, made those up, but then one person stole it and then another person stole it from that person, and eventually they're becoming generic lines. Like, when you start a street show, you put a rope or you pour some water from a water bottle around on the ground, marking where your stage edge is, and you get people to come up to it. All these things have been done first by someone and the techniques that we now will learn how to organize the theater, how to place the people around in booths, will they will be wearing masks, all these things is going to be the new normal for us uh, show folk. 
I think it's exciting. And in terms of on individual developments of us who are sitting back home in our houses and in our caravans in the, in the hot Nevada desert or wherever you might find yourself during these strange times, you will also be needing to channel your uh, creativity in a new way. And I think this is the time to be planting seeds. This is the time to develop because we've been given time and all we can do with this time is to decide what to do with it. Tolkien said something like this in Lord of the Rings and uh, me being Frodo, that speaks to me. So uh, procrastination is an enemy. It's so easy to spend a whole day doing nothing that will have any impact on your life going forward. So I'd recommend very practically set off 30 minutes to pinpoint a few of your ideas. Do that every day. Focus on acts, skills, shows you wanted to do, paintings, drawings. Have you ever wanted to write a poem? Is this the time to start working on those memoirs? And once you've pinpointed something, then swap from searching for ideas and focus the 30 minutes on working on one of them. Develop it. If you do, everybody's got 30 minutes. You've got 30 minutes, you use it on scrolling on your phone or whatever it is. Spend that 30 minutes on working on yourself, on your character, like your character in the show, or just on yourself. What is your new way forward? Step up, spend some time on that. It's what matters the most, and it's what's going to get us out of this, this um, hole in the ground that we are in at the moment. Now, today's... Uh, uh, today's essay uh, is uh, called Secret Knowledge and Me, and it is about uh, two streams of uh, secrets that are flying through my life. And uh, of course, I always question, is it important for me to talk about myself here? And the thing that is making it okay, it's a quote that I've kind of translated. I think it was said by Viola Spolin, who wrote, uh, wrote a seminal book on improvisational theater. And she said, the more personal you manage to be, the more universal you become, that's the key. I mean, I don't think she rhymed when she said it, but I wrote it into a song one time and uh, that was the way it was. And I think that by going quite deeply into the specifics of myself, just like you do when you're writing a, a fictional story about someone, I think you can maybe connect to something deeper within every one of us. I am talking about myself, but I'm also talking about the mythological shaman, the archetype. Now, with this in mind, it made me think of this quote that apparently comes from Eleanor Roosevelt, and she said, Great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people. <laughs> if this, in fact, is true, then I... That's probably why I'm reluctant to talk about myself, but I hope that you're all doing well. I know that I am doing well, and a big reason for me doing well during this time is this podcast and the time that I get to spend with you. Anyway, without further ado, thanks for listening, and here is today's essay. Secret Knowledge and me. By absolute chance, when I was going to be enrolled in school, it turned out I would get the very same teacher my dad had endured so many years ago. We had moved house not long before I came into school age, which was at seven at that time. Our new house 
which was almost 80 years old and looking like it, was walking distance from my grandparents' house where my dad had grown up, thus placing me at the same school. My father had not been impressed by this teacher's ability to pass on knowledge or give a child a good foundation to find his way in life. Almost three decades later, the man looked dead and empty like the husk of a fly on a windowsill. When my mum and dad asked who my teacher would be, the lady doing the initial paperwork told them it didn't matter since they had no choice anyway. And that is how I ended up at a Steiner school, or a Waldorf school as it's called there in America. No one knew anything about Steiner schools in Haugesund, Norway at the end of the 80s. They still don't. Few anywhere knows much about the esoteric and occult spiritual science developed by the philosopher and visionary mystic Rudolf Steiner at the dawn of the 20th century. This was before the internet, so you couldn't just Google stuff. You needed someone to show you to the knowledge and through it. A library, perhaps. The books on Steiner's work were out there, but not easy to find. It was a particular kind of secret, hidden, but out there if you sought it out. This guide was not a librarian, but a local architect who uh, designed the local library, by chance. He was a student of Steiner's work and held a cycle of talks for the new parents at the school called An Introduction to Anthroposophy, which is what Steiner dubbed his work. The word anthropos comes from the Greek word for human, and Sophia means wisdom. Rudolf Steiner was a doctor in philosophy. His principal philosophical work is called the philosophy of freedom. The individual's development into total freedom is a central part of his work. The man wrote 40 books and held about 6,000 lectures on every topic from education and esoteric Christianity to beekeeping and composting via medicine and also developing a whole new style of dancing called eurythmy which is, amongst other things, a gestural representation and visualization of sound, which meant that by the time I was nine years old, I could dance my name. <laughs> His lectures were stenographically recorded and later published, an effort which still goes on today. So far his collected works are about 330 books, the most prominent anthroposophical movement today are probably the Steiner or Waldorf schools, as well as biodynamic agriculture. How one man can have such an output boggles the mind. His spiritual science aimed to make the occult less hidden, to bring the arcane knowledge previously taught to and understood only by initiates in occult brotherhoods and organizations out into the world. He revealed that behind the world, beneath it and above it, there was more going on. There were secrets behind everything. These secrets found resonance with my mother, and it became part of her life from then on. She worked in a kindergarten based on the ideas of this man for 30 years, and I saw books in her bookshelf with alluring titles like Outline of an Occult Science, four mystery dramas, 
and the philosophy of freedom. The ideas were around, but she didn't talk about it, because it was secret. School was the same way. I went to a Steiner school for 14 years, two years of preschool and 12 years of regular school, and nobody told me anything about Rudolf Steiner or his worldview. The world of education is based on his ideas about human nature, particularly the needs of children through their stages of development. He held about 200 different lectures about education, most as a part of lecture courses for the teachers of the first Waldorf school, which opened in 1919. It had about a thousand children and was situated in the Waldorf Astoria cigarette factory in Stuttgart, Germany, hence the Waldorf name. A foundational principle in Steiner's philosophy is that each child, each human being, is here on earth to fulfill a task. They are on their own mission, so to speak, to realize themselves. That a teacher believes a child has something special inside them and that her task as a teacher is to discover what it is and to nurture it is, in my opinion, the key reason to the success of this form of education. There are many other things too, of course, but anyway... The school puts equal emphasis on the intellectual, the artistic, and the physical. We had mathematics, geography, and physics, as well as painting, drawing, and sculpting. And on top of that, we had practical crafts like sewing, woodwork, and metalworks. As they say, they educate the whole human being through the head, the heart, and the hands. Even though they didn't reveal anything about the science of the hidden, it was still redolent in the teachers. They had a knowing spark in their eyes, like there was always something more to what was going on and to what they were doing, be it the carving of a bowl from a piece of wood, the sewing and shaping of a pair of shoes, or moving in arcane ways to visualize a poem and making its meaning visible, there were new connections and deeper reasons to be discovered. Behind everything there were secrets to be revealed. The world was a place filled with wonder, profound and meaningful and speckled with mystery. With the right approach and work you could discover those secrets. This was a promise. Uh, my dad is a magician, but after I was born he took a break from the conjuring and performing, and like, like most kids I thought my dad could do anything, fix a car, build a house, he had built two houses by that stage, or re-solder your cassette player after you spilt a glass of milk into it, frying its circuits. Normal dad things. But there was more to my dad. My mind was blown when I was seven and saw him perform for the first time. It was at a fancy dress party, right about the time I started school. Dad was busy renovating our dilapidated house on top of the Pretzel Hill. That was our address, 14 Pretzel Hill. My dad performed his magic, dressed up as a hobo. It was fancy dress after all. I don't remember much 
but I remember him doing a magic trick where he poured three different coloured drinks from the same bottle after stuffing silk handkerchiefs with corresponding colours into the neck of the bottle before pouring. He had things on his table that I had never seen before, including a bunch of feather flowers, strange objects no one ever sees except in the hands of magicians. He picked me as a volunteer and when he asked me if we had ever met before, I had been instructed to answer, No, Dad. I think that might have been my first stage laugh. My dad, he also went to the An Introduction to Anthroposophy course, but he did not get bitten by the occult bug, perhaps because he already had his own secret knowledge the seed of which was planted in him not by a mystic visionary, but from his great-uncle who went by the stage name Sertini. <laughs> With a stage name like that, it does not take Sherlock Holmes to work out the type of stagecraft he was engaged in. A magician of the old majestic type, shiny top hat, tails, white gloves, manipulating cigarettes, coins and cards to the soundtrack of a tango recorded from Scratchy's 78 records a master of sleight of hand, noted by him placing fourth in the manipulation contest at FISM, which is the World Championship of Magic, in Brussels in 1967. So in short, he was the kind of uncle who at parties, if pushed, could pull endless coins from the ears and noses of the younger family members. I think these kinds of uncles with their endless card tricks or magical party pieces are to blame for both the love many of us have for magic and the dislike others experience with the thought of it. It was from him my father learned his first secrets which started his lifelong love affair with magic and secrets. The secrets of conjuring are of a particular type. You must swear on the pain of death not to reveal any secrets to a layperson. Yet you can access them all in a magic shop. There are a lot of magic books. David Copperfield, a fellow resident of Las Vegas, has a private magic library containing more than 15,000 volumes on the illustrious art. Many of these are available at your local magic dealer. So for a reasonable investment, you can learn pretty much any secret magic has to offer. It's the same way with the secrets of Rudolf Steiner. If you seek them, you will find them. All that's required is the will to do so and the tenacity and time to dig it out. These days, Steiner's complete works, or the Gesamtausgabe, are available for free online, both in German and English. The secrets are out there. Of course, with thousands of esoteric lectures and thousands of magic books, where do you start? And this is where a mentor like Great Uncle Sertini makes all the difference. If we break down magic into its simplest forms, we can say that each conjuring trick is happening on two levels simultaneously. It's the levels of effect and method. The effect is what the spectator sees. This part includes something the spectator experiences as incompatible with their view of how the world works. It lets them experience something impossible.
like a great uncle showing his hand empty and then pulling a coin from your ear, even though you could swear you didn't keep any coins there. The method is the secret behind the effect that allows the effect to happen. It's the secret move, the sleight of hand, which created the illusion of the impossible happening right before your eyes or behind your ears. In our case, it's the very particular way the great uncle held his hand when he showed it empty. This way of hiding something is what magicians call palming. Palming is a magical secret used as a method for many illusions. There is an almost endless amount of methods in magic. That means endless secrets. Sleight of hand is just one possibility. Mechanical contraptions and devious devices, which look so innocuous and innocent every day, you would never think they had built-in secret features to aid a magician in his craft. In many cases, you don't even notice them at all, so that when you later recount the miracle you witnessed, you neglect mentioning that the coins were briefly put down onto a plate or into a champagne cooler thereby strengthening the effect in the retelling. Give or take a thousand years, and you have a miracle. On the level of method, there is further an entire field of magic knowledge on psychology and the physical tactics which can be employed to enhance the effect and conceal the method. This whole area is often referred to as misdirection. Don't ask a magician to show you the way. He will misdirect you. The experience of the effect is the point of the magic. It's the reason there are methods. There are a couple of million magic nerds who might beg to differ. Card slingers and sleight-of-hand enthusiasts are often so interested in the methods they forget about the effect. In truth, the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle both as important as each other. Preoccupation with secrets is to be expected. This is, after all, the unique domain of magicians. If you hang around with magicians online or in the analog real world, a lot of conversations revolve around methods for achieving the impossible. It's all about the secrets. Each effect could potentially be achieved with several different methods. A crafty device could slide the coin up and down his sleeve. A false pass could make the spectator think the coin was put from one hand into the other when it wasn't. To make things more complicated, the great uncle might know three different ways to palm. Three different methods of showing his hand empty whilst retaining and hiding a coin in it. Each palm allowing him to show his hand empty in a different way. Then in a routine, he might nest his secrets, giving you the impression he is doing the same thing three times, whilst in reality performing the same effect three times, but using three different methods. He pulls three coins out from your ear each time he shows you his hand empty, each subsequent palming annulling the weakness of the previous palm. One palm only allows him to show you the back of his hand before he plucks the coin from your ear. He points out that you might have thought that he had it in his palm. He shows you his palm whilst using a palm that hides the coin on the back of the hand. 
Finally, with a sequence of moves, he shows you the front and the back, empty, before pulling the last coin from your ear, blowing your mind in the process. In this way, the three different methods, palmings, helps build up the complete experience of impossibility, raising it to the level of miraculous. I grew up with conjuring and esoteric secrets. The nature of each could hardly be more different. They are from different ends of a spectrum. The conjuring secrets, in a way, are doomed to disappoint. For with conjuring it is the effect which is the beautiful thing, not the secret. A rose levitating only to disappear in a flash of smoke, as a sad love song plays, is symbolic and beautiful. A black elastic snatching the flower up a sleeve as an enema bulb filled with stale cigarette smoke hidden in a sweaty armpit and squeezed at the right time is neither beautiful nor symbolic. With the esoteric Western tradition, it is often the opposite. Rudolf Steiner's secrets and the secrets of the occult and hermetic traditions tells you connections and importances of things you often did not think of as a thing at all. He beautifully and they beautifully ascribe meanings to the world. The secrets of the occult can feel so very beautiful, uniting and elucidating, if sometimes only on a mythical level. Take Rudolf Steiner's thoughts on the role of the baby teeth falling out as a marker for children being ready for school, as this is currently happening to my daughter. The child's job for the first seven years is playing, and along the way gaining mastery of all things physical, uprightness, balance, walking, speaking, singing, hand-eye coordination, jumping, running, tumbling, small motor skills and eating habits being just some of them. All things involved with their little bodies finding their way in the world. As the teeth become wobbly and fall out, it shows, according to Steiner, that they have reached the completion of one stage of their physical development and are ready for the next, welcoming more academic learning around letters, numbers and the like. Steiner explains that in the first seven years a child's body is transforming from expressing the inherited characteristics of the mother and father to one that represents the full personality of the child. Receive the children in reverence, educate them with love and send them forth in freedom, Steiner said. It's simple and resonant, yet the occult secrets can easily become indistinguishable from mumbo-jumbo. I sample both kinds of secrets, each stimulating a different passion in me. One kind is open and expanding, stimulating creativity, and the other kind is my bread and butter, my bullshit detector, keeping my feet on the ground so I'm not swept away by guards with clay feet. In anthroposophical terms, the two kinds of secrets are my Lucifer and Araman, whilst I balance between them, like the Christ figure of Steiner's sculpture, Die Holzplastik. The building which my childhood school was housed at 
had been a fancy restaurant before it was bought and transformed by the Steiner School pioneers. It is spectacularly situated on a large hill overlooking the town. This gave the restaurant stunning views of the frequently rough North Seas, and on a good day you could see all the way out to the island of Utsira, the smallest municipality in Norway, 18 kilometers off the coast, perhaps whilst enjoying a Campari and soda. And from this beautiful view came the name of the place, Bellevue. It had been quite a place, good food, great drinks. It had a massive seawater fish tank where you could see the cod and flounder swim before you ate them. It also had a beautiful stage area for music and entertainment. Sometime in the 60s, a young man, a teenager, regularly entertained the dinner guests with magic. And that young man was my dad. More than two decades before it became my school, my dad displayed his effects, but did not reveal any of his secrets. At least, that's what he claims these days. The school taught me how to read, do trigonometry, to measure landscapes and make maps. I spent uh, the whole of my last year from when I was 17 until I was 18 writing a thesis on Norse mythology, trying to figure out how these often funny stories could have been the religious and cultural underpinnings of the Nordic people. I bounded myself, and book under arm, I walked out of the school in a shirt I had sewn myself and shoes I had made, convinced that the world was full of secrets of all kinds. There were methods behind the effects. There were things to learn about great connections beneath the seeming chaos of biology, earth science and architectural history. I was 18. I knew just enough to feel like I knew everything. And whatever secrets had escaped me, I was convinced I could pick up along the way. And with that, we come to an end of today's episode i want to thank you all so much for listening and i want to thank in particular those who have taken the time out of their busy schedules to click me five stars or even write me a review it's been moving to read and it continues to be somebody even somebody even wrote me a poem summarizing up in a beautiful way some of the details from the last uh, episode I'm hoping to maybe read that on air here in not too long and on top of that somebody, Lorenzo, drew me the most spectacular art that you could find on my Captain Frodo Facebook page and you'll probably see it somehow connected to the podcast in the future. Thank you all so much for this amazing response and as always you will be able to find uh, future episodes and the past episodes at uh, iTunes or at Apple Podcasts or at uh, Spotify or Stitcher or Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. And you will also find uh, my essays and my thoughts on my slowly but steadily growing website, thewayoftheshowman.com. With that, all that remains to be said is take care of yourself, those you love, and I hope to see you all along the way.